0: Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. This is a community also dedicated to the ideal of celebrating differences. So we aim to welcome folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different family situations, different skin tones, cultural backgrounds, gender identities, sexual preferences, um, political affiliations, tastes in music, etc., etc., We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every human. And so it is in that spirit that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and in the warmth of love, we gather to seek to find and to share. Today's call to worship is, uh, is from Emma Goldman. And it goes like this. Someday, men and women will rise. They will reach the mountain peak. They will meet big and strong and free. Ready to receive, to partake, and to bask in the golden rays of love. What fancy, what imagination, what poetic genius can foresee exactly the potentialities of such a force in the life of men and women? We get asked pretty often by family and friends, how do you even call it worship? How do you call it church? What do you all worship? What is going on in there? You have people with roots in Christianity, with roots in Judaism. You have people with roots in humanism, with earth-centered religion. You've got people of all different kinds and beliefs and astronomers and astrologers sitting right next to each other. And what holds you together? And I can talk for a long time on that, but the short answer is our mission. We gather in community to nourish souls Transform lives and do justice Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving kindness prayer or meta meditation. We say this through three times i 'll say a line and you say it after me should you choose to. The first time through is for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be be physically happy. May I I have ease of of well-being. The second time is for someone we love. May May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of of well-being. The last time as a spiritual stretch we say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you, May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well being. May, May it be so. One of my friends lives in Alabama with his wife, and he has a shrine in his hallway. There's a little shelf, and there are two candles, and there's a picture of Jesus right over the shrine. Um, On one side of the picture of Jesus is a picture of Jimmy Carter. And on the other side of the picture of Jesus is a picture of Bear Bryant. (laughs) And I think, who would I have in my shrine You know, one of the sources of Unitarian Universalism is the prophetic deeds and words of great men and women. And so that's the source for this sermon. But I think, how do you tell if a person is great or not? What does that mean? And one of the things that most of us in this faith tradition believe is that revelation of truth is ongoing. That means there's not one book that has it all. But it continues to be revealed to us, especially through the words and deeds of great men and women. And I think even since you can't tell really who's great or not, just the words and deeds of men and women, like the person that rides the subway to work with you or the person, we don't have one of those in Austin, but the person who's on the bus with you or the the person in the bike lay next to you or the person who's dancing to the swing band at Central Market, those people are people whose lives are a sacred text, as are yours, so we learn from those people, even though it's hard to tell who's great or who's not great, my dad wouldn't let me have heroes growing up. Mm. He would tell me about you know the flaws of JFK, whom he adored, the flaws of Martin Luther King, whom he also adored. He would he would talk about how everyone has bad things and good things to them. And so, you know, if you hear something Unsavory or disappointing about someone you admire, you can still admire them. You just admire them as a human being rather than as an icon. Um, I I've been listening to a lot of commentary on the 50th anniversary of the march, the the march on Washington that happened, and um, people were talking about this morning. They were talking about how radical Martin Luther King Jr. was, and how he's been wishwashed. What's the word that she used? She said, "You know, we we." We wash the people we wash off the things that we don 't we 're not really comfortable with, and we just portray people in history as we wish they had been, kind of like our children 's story because um, you know David did not get hit in the head with a rock and then go i think i won 't bother them anymore you know he died, and David cut off his head and um, <laughs> and we got the grim version of those Bible tales when we were Children And we love the bloodier the better, as I've told you before. Um, But it's nice, you know, it's nice to tell a sweetened-up version. Um, I guess. And... (laughs) um, You can't really say it's not true, that's not how it really happened, because you don't know how it really happened, or if it really happened. You know, it's one of those things. It's a mythic story, but... You know, sometimes mythic stories need a little more blood. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so it's getting really hard to admire people with your whole heart. And, you know, we find out terrible things about Thomas Jefferson, and so we change the name of our Unitarian Universalist Thomas Jefferson District. We change that name because we find out, you know, well, we knew he was a slaveholder before, and we decide, you know, if you if you truck with enslaved human beings, then you're not really the person you thought we were and... Um, it's even more complicated than that, and maybe you could even find something bad about J- Jimmy Carter. Or, or I know there's bad stuff about Bear Bryant. And um, you know, in my shrine, there would be there would be uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and there would be um, Margaret Sanger, and there would be uh, Robin Hood, and there would be Bette Midler, and. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it occurs to me that they don't have to be there forever. They might just be my saints in my shrine while I need what they've got, and then I can switch my saints around if I want to. And you might tell me that Gandhi was mean to his kids who hated him, or you might tell me, that's Eric Erickson's biography um, of of Gandhi, or you might tell me that Ben Midler was not kind to the little people on her way up, or you might tell me that... Robin Hood is fictional, <laughs> but I don't care. I'm just going to say your mom's fictional, and I'm going um, <laughs> to light my candles. <laughs> and so this morning, I'm going to talk about Margaret Sanger, who is one of those people. She's one of those people that had Good things and bad things and uh, disappointing things and inspiring things about her. She was born in the late 1800s to a mom who had 11 living children, 18 pregnancies. Mm Hmm. Her mama was tired, and her mama died at 50, just worn out. And Margaret Sanger saw that. She blamed her dad. She was raised, after her mom uh, died, the whole, all the 11 children were um, cared for by the dad, who was an atheist, and the dad uh, was a drummer boy in one of the regiments in the Civil War, and so that would make anybody an atheist, really, to see the Civil War (sighs) would would work on you. And her dad was a socialist. And so she and her brothers and sisters were jeered at by the other children in the town, Corning, New York, and called the devil's children. So really from a very young age, Margaret Sanger had some social abuse. Being called the devil's children while you're walking to school is going to shape you in some way. And um, so she uh, grew up left home, decided to become trained as a nurse. Her training was ended when she married William Sanger, who was an architect. They moved to Hastings-on-Hudson, which is a lovely suburb of New York City. Had two children. Um, The the house burned down, so they moved into the city. They moved into Greenwich Village, and she... was, became very involved, she and William both, in the leftist politics of the bohemian culture of Greenwich Village. They worked for um, workers' rights. They were involved in the silk mill strike. They, they were part of the, the, the leftist turbulence of that neighborhood she began working among the immigrant and poor women and families of the Lower East Side. She would do nursing, <clears throat> and she decided uh, that one of the huge problems that women faced, that families faced, was that they had to have all these children, and there was no way, short of as the doctors would say, "Make your husband sleep on the floor." <laughs> that was uh, the only way that you could not have any more children, and um, that was hard on marriages too. People would call her in when the women were, uh, and I'm going to speak a little obliquely about this because I'm not sure how many children are in the audience we uh, in the in the other room and in this room. Um, she was called in when women would try to terminate for themselves and she was, and they would become very sick. She was called in when a uh, termination didn't go well, when the woman had $5 to scrape together to have somebody else do it in the alley. And she was becoming very frustrated, delivering babies and trying to help women heal up from these things. And they would have one child after the other. When you have 13 already, the 14th is beloved, but a burden it's very difficult to bear when you don't have enough food for the 13 that are already there. See what I'm saying? And the women would beg her for information about how to keep this from happening again. And she knew some, but she didn't know a lot. She went to the library to try to find... Information, and there wasn't any, because any information on contraception was obscenity under the Comstock Law from 1870 something, and you couldn't talk about it, you couldn't write pamphlets about it, you couldn't send it through the mail. And talking about information, um, you 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 would get arrested because of the Comstock Law. She started writing a, a column, sex education column, for a newspaper, a socialist newspaper in Washington, in New York, uh, called What Every Mother Should Know. And then she put together an eight-page publication, monthly publication, called The Woman Rebel, in which she talked about uh, empowering women by giving them information by which to limit their families. So, this was against the law. The U.S. Postal Service confiscated the first five issues, so they never got out, except the ones that she handed to people. The last two issues, six and seven, escaped and uh, were disseminated, and she got arrested and indicted for obscenity. Margaret Sanger, this is about 1912. Um, Instead of going to trial, she jumped bail, and took a boat to England, she had been working on a 16-page booklet called Family Limitation, in which she drew diagrams that some of our legislators could profit from. (laughs) Diagrams about how reproduction worked and how to limit it. Um, This was, of course... Completely illegal. But while she was on her way to England, she had them release this booklet. And so she was really in trouble. While she was in England, she was supported by a group of people um, called the Neo-Malthusians, if you need to know. Um, People who were uh, alarmed about population growth and agricultural capacity seeing, not in the too far distant future, that agricultural capacity would be outstripped by population growth. Well, So this became a great big uh, birth control talking point that we needed to limit our families because the earth's resources wouldn't uh, support the population, which was thought to be um, due to grow 30% in the next few years. Well, we know it's grown more than that. But um, so this Mike Wallace interview that I watched, Mike Wallace, 1957, interviewing Margaret Sanger, it was a very interesting kind of even pre-Mad Men culture. And Mike Wallace is, um, you can see it on the church's Facebook page. Um, he's sitting there. He goes, this is Mike Wallace, and the cigarette is... Philip Morris. I'm talking to Margaret Sanger today, and his his approach to her is so um, it's almost indescribable. It's not exactly hostile, but it's arrogant, and he argues the position of the Roman Catholic Church with such passion, one might forget that he's a uh, objective journalist, and um, and it's interesting to see the look in her eye, this bohemian wild thing, at in her late 70s at this point, um, looking at him when he says, "But do you believe in sin?" And she's she, she's kind of like, "I don't I don't know what you mean um, by sin, really." He says, "You know, in the way that we commonly use it." Then she didn't say, "We who." white man <laughs> but she might as well have anyway it's fascinating so if you want to uh, watch it you can see him smoking all through the interview it's just quite striking you never see that anymore and at the end, bless her heart, she goes, I have never smoked, Mr. Wallace, but I think I might take up smoking and my, my cigarette will be Philip Morris. <laughs> <sighs> so anyway, she writes this, this booklet and she's in trouble and she falls in with these people in England. And so uh, what I'm actually delaying t- telling you about is the streak of shame that runs through this, which is that the, also the people who... Uh, supported her were the eugenics people who felt that the poor, the unfit um, the uh, <clears throat> mentally physically challenged folks should should not bear children should not be allowed to bear children, and so um, she unfortunately got support from them and uh, from time to time would articulate this position so you know there 's the disappointing part um, she felt that there would be tremendous social change if women were allowed to control their own fertility. And so she, kept, she narrowed her focus to that and took whatever talking points she could. And when opposed by the law, broke the law, when opposed by the Catholic Church uh, went up against them, um, Wallace over and over says, but, but don't you think the Catholic response is reasoned? It's a natural law, natural law, that people should bear children, that women should bear children. And um, don't, what do you say to what the Catholics have said? And finally, frustrated, she says, I don't care. I thought, well, now, let, now we got to it. When she came back to the States a few years later, she opened a birth control clinic in Brooklyn. The line was around the block. She handed out information. She uh, had, um, there were uh, diaphragms from Holland that she got. She imported those against the law. Um, Didn't import them through the mail, just brought them in her suitcases and um, gave them out nine days after that clinic Open, she was arrested. Um, she spent time in jail. She was arrested eight times, thrown into jail. Her case um, was appealed, and appealed, and appealed. The first judge said in his ruling women should not have the right to have sex with any sense of security, that pregnancy would not result. That was the opinion of the law. Appeal after appeal until a judge said physicians could have the right to prescribe birth control for medical reasons. Well, you never saw so many medical reasons all of a sudden. (laughs) That was the first victory. She was asked to found another clinic up in Harlem, and she did. She staffed it with African-American doctors, African-American nurses. W.E.B. Du Bois was on the board of that clinic. She she founded these clinics in different areas and um, was constantly under attack. She founded the American Birth Control League and middle class people began to join their voice to hers and their money to hers. One person can speak loudly, but a group of people, very loudly. She was invited to visit Japan. She was invited to visit China. She um, worked with a prominent Japanese feminist to begin the birth control movement there. In 29, she founded a lobbying organization to change the federal law, No success there. She decided to challenge the law, so she ordered a diaphragm from Japan, and it came through the mail, and it was confiscated by the U.S. government. And I would have loved to see the optics on that, where you see how many people were looking at that portal thing. Just... (laughs) What should we do with this? They uh, took it to court, and... Finally, finally, in 1936, it became okay to talk about it. A significant portion of the Comstock Act was overthrown. 1937, the American Medical Association decided that it would be good part of normal medical practice to talk about contraception with your people. 1937. In 1946, she founded the organization that was to become Planned Parenthood. She didn't like the name. She liked birth control. But Planned Parenthood was a little softer than she liked. But um, that's what it was. She had a dream that there would be a pill at someday that you could take that would limit your fertility. Just one magic pill. And she began working on that. She was, uh, she was introduced to a research scientist named Greg Pincus. And he... Uh, had just uh, perfected in vitro fertilization of uh, rabbits. And so he was portrayed as this mad scientist making rabbits in the laboratory. Anyway, she talked to him and said, do you think there's a possibility that we could have a pill? He said, I, I think so. I think hormones are the key, but I'm not sure. I don't have what I need to do that research. And she said, what do you need? He said, it's going to take millions. She said, I'll be right back. And she came back with her friend, Catherine McCormick, heir to the international harvester fortune, who wrote him a check and said, get what you need, there's more where that came from. And it was really very soon that he had an injection that kept all the rabbits from getting pregnant. So now we have birth control for rabbits. (laughs) How to get it to women. They needed an actual doctor, a physician. And along comes a Roman Catholic physician who's 64 years old. He had delivered enough babies to people who already had enough babies, they felt. He was uh, ready to help this project. And so he began clinical trials of the pill form of this injection. They couldn't do it in the States because the regulations were too strict, so they went to Puerto Rico, where they actually had pretty many birth control clinics, and women who would kind of agree to be part of it. Now, this is a little vague part, and here's another strand of shame in this whole story. I'm not sure how informed the consent of the women was to participate in this. They... The women who took this progesterone pill had a lot of complaints about side effects, which the doctors kind of, uh, the doctor brushed aside. Um, They began distributing it in the United States, a lot of side effects. They would cut the progesterone and had fewer and fewer side effects as the years went on. But this was the world-changing pill. So that women who could have access to it, who could afford it, who could find a doctor, who would prescribe it, those women could limit their own fertility. And they could work without the fear that they were going to get pregnant without wanting to. I mean, it still happened, of course. But so much less. It just changed the entire, entire world uh, for women. So... Good thing that everybody loves those clinics now, huh? (laughs) Good thing that Margaret Sanger is victorious and not under attack anymore, huh? (sighs) She's still under attack in our country, as you know. Her clinics are closing. Uh, I don't understand why. If there were a visitor from Mars who said, why are the people who are against abortion Closing all the clinics that give people information about contraception and give them contraception that would prevent abortion. Why are they doing that? I would say, I don't know. It's got something to do with uh, religion, but I can't figure it out. And I've studied religion for years. I don't know what they're thinking. But I do know that it is incredibly encouraging how far we've come in the 56 years since that interview where a very brave woman could be treated with cavalier arrogance um, by a man uh, in power. And although he probably didn't think he was. And I'm sure he's a very nice person now. A lot has changed in 56 years, and a lot's going to change in the next 56 years, my friends, We are going to be part of it. You have been part of that change in the last 56 years. It happened because of people like Margaret Sanger and people like you, and it's going to continue happening because of us. So let's just take up our clay feet and walk down to the Capitol, and whether we are Democrats or Republicans, let us fight foolishness where we see it and fight idiocy where we see it and get back to a place where we have two honorable parties that anyone could be proud to be part of either one and let us make some things happen or fight things that happen but let us do it in a way that's not idiotic how about and uh, I'll look forward to walking that walk with you. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Our benediction comes from the civil rights tradition because the fight for civil rights keeps going and going and keeps being pushed back, and they try to turn us around, and we will not be turned around. If you know this, please sing with me. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on talking, keep on walking, march into the freedom land. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.